Hi, I'm Cecilia Cancelero, the senior editor of U.S. and Latin American history here at Cambridge University Press. I'm delighted to be here today with Jeff Foray, author of the book Williams Gang, a notorious slave trader and his cargo of black convicts. I have an interesting relationship with this particular book. I was actually the literary agent who sold this book to Cambridge in 2018. And then in late 2019, I took a job here and became Jeff's editor, just in time to see the book published. So I suppose I've sort of come full circle with this one. Williams Gang is a meticulously researched and extremely original scholarly work. Uh, but it's also a pleasure to read. And from a publishing standpoint, that's truly a winning combination. Reviewers have called this book absorbing and superbly crafted, and they've also said it has a profound message. The book tells the fascinating story of 27 enslaved black convicts who were purchased out of the Virginia State Penitentiary by a Washington, D.C. slave trader, William H. Williams, in 1840. The sale was made with the understanding that Williams would transport the convicts outside of the U.S. for sale. What happened next turned into a captivating three decades long drama. Jeff Foray is a professor of history and distinguished faculty research fellow at Lamar University. Jeff's previous book, Slave Against Slave, Plantation Violence in the Old South, won the prestigious Frederick Douglass Book Prize awarded by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about Williams Gang. Oh, well, thank you. So in the intro, I gave a brief description of the book. But can you tell us a bit more about the story you tell? Um, and it really, truly is a fascinating story. Uh, sure. Well, you know, William H. Williams is a Washington, D.C. slave trader. Uh, he also operates the Yellow House private slave jail uh, in the nation's capital, uh, which is located uh, just about a half mile west of the U.S. Capitol. Congressmen can see it uh, from uh, Capitol Hill. And, and yes, like, like any other slave trader in the Chesapeake region, uh, he uh, and his agents uh, went around Maryland and Virginia uh, buying up uh, enslaved people that their owners no longer uh, wish to, to keep. And uh, then he would uh, take them to his slave jail and uh, uh, congregate these people. And uh, once they had a sufficient shipment, uh, send them off to uh, the Deep South. And, and in 1840, yes, he, he sends an agent to the uh, Virginia State Penitentiary in Richmond. And he buys these 27 enslaved convicts uh, out of there. Uh, every single one of these uh, 27 people uh, had been convicted of some sort of crime uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, most of them just simple theft, but a few, you know, assaults on white people and things of that nature. And, and as a result of these uh, convictions, all of them had been uh, sentenced to death. Uh, but in each case, the Virginia governor uh, had reprieve their sentences to sale and transportation outside of the United States, uh, which was a legal option for uh, governors in Virginia. Virginia had this whole buying process, this bidding process, uh, to get the highest price possible for these enslaved convicts that would be sold outside of the country. 
and uh, William's agent had the winning bid. Uh, so they're bought out of the penitentiary. They spend some time in the Yellow House for about a month or so, uh, and then they are uh, shipped ultimately uh, out of port at Alexandria. You you talk about the Yellow House, and I, I just there are some really vivid descriptions about the Yellow House in the book, and you describe it as a slave pen, sometimes as a jail. Um, so first of all, what is a slave pen, and, and who was held there, and why? And just just so give us a, a, a picture of that, of, of what that, that building was like um, and, and who one might find there. The, the, the slave jail, uh, the Yellow House in my particular case, but there were other slave jails uh, in Washington, D.C., was a, a place where enslaved people would be stored uh, prior to shipment to the Deep South uh, as traders are accumulating enough people uh, to constitute a shipment. Um, that's part of the reason that they're there. Uh, but also uh, slave owners from the South who just happened to be visiting Washington, D.C., uh, could confine their enslaved people uh, in these slave jails while they were there doing business, if they just wanted to keep them safe uh, and, and secure while they were doing uh, what they needed to do. Uh, they could head over to the Yellow House uh, and pay 25 cents a day. Uh, just to have those enslaved people uh, kept there safely. This was nine cents a day cheaper than the uh, D.C. city jail. And, and also at these places, uh, the, uh, the jailers would also uh, administer punishments, uh, give whippings uh, for those masters who uh, didn't wish to do that themselves, that they could pay somebody else to do that uh, for them. Uh, the, the, the structure itself, the Yellow House, uh, it, was, it was a three-story brick structure. Uh, it had been plastered and, and painted yellow. Uh, it was located on, on the city block between 7th and 8th Streets, between B Street and Maryland Avenue, just south of the mall, uh, across the street these days from the uh, Hirshhorn Museum, uh, where the Orville Wright Federal Aviation Administration building is now. Uh, but it occupied a, a good chunk of that whole city block. Uh, it had uh, walls that were 10 to 12 feet tall, made of brick. Uh, there was a brick courtyard in the center. Uh, on the one side of it, there was this kind of open lean-to that faced into the courtyard, and the, the you know, enslaved prisoners there could sleep under the, uh, the overhanging roof there if they chose. Uh, but there was also a, a two-story brick outbuilding uh, that constituted the, the slave quarters. Uh, there was a heavy iron gate uh, that separated uh, the pen from the outside. Uh, there, were, there were ferocious dogs said to be wandering about. But um, in terms of uh, the, the most famous people uh, who have gone through there, uh, the, the most famous would be Solomon Northup uh, from uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, for anyone who's seen the movie or, or read his narrative. Uh, of course, Solomon Northrop, uh, Northup was a, uh, a free black man from the North, uh, but he was kidnapped, uh, taken to Washington, D.C., um, under promises of, of gainful employment. Uh, but there, uh, his, his supposed employers uh, drugged him, and then he awoke uh, in the basement dungeon underneath the Yellow House, uh, and he was all chained to the floor at that point. So, uh, and we do have descriptions from travelers too, of you know uh, chains, you know, in the walls, where you could see where uh, enslaved people had been uh, held captive. 
Beyond the actual story that you tell in the book, um, which, you know, like I said, it's a, it goes on to be this three-decade-long odyssey that involves legal battles and many other things. Um, why would you say people should read this book? I mean, I always ask authors when I'm talking to them and they're thinking about their book, what intervention does it make? Um, and, you know, I know this is obviously a work of history, but um, in some recent interviews you've done, there's been discussions about the parallels between the modern prison industrial complex and the domestic slave trade. Um, can you talk about that in the context of your book a little bit? I mean, I, I think it's a book that one can read on different levels and for different purposes. Uh, if, if you just want to find out about the domestic slave trade and how it functioned, uh, transporting enslaved people from the upper south to, to the lower, you can certainly find that out in the book. Um, but, but more broadly still, I think it, it does provide this sort of wide-ranging portrait of the, the, the social, economic, and political situation uh, in the antebellum era and in, in the pre-Civil War South. Um, but, but initially, I mean, I did conceive of the book as, as a legal history of, of the domestic slave trade. I, I wanted to do something uh, about slave law and Southern jurisprudence. And, and certainly, uh, as, as I was going through the story, uh, I did see various uh, parallels between uh, the past and present, uh, issues about uh, the policing of black people, wrongful convictions, um, and, and especially the history of, of black incarceration. All of these things uh, surface in, in Williams' gang. You know, historians often talk about sort of two major eras of, of change when it comes to uh, black incarceration. Uh, one of them is like right after the Civil War. Uh, I, I talk in the book about how like in the Louisiana State Penitentiary uh, in 1860, uh, two-thirds of all the inmates are white. Uh, in 1868, two-thirds of all the inmates are black. So that, that's a, a pretty huge reversal in just eight years that you know, now that slavery is over, uh, you know, prison becomes a form of, of racial and social and economic control. But then, you know, you move uh, farther ahead in time, you know, more recently, uh, you get to this era of, of, you know, mass incarceration that, that really picks up steam in the 1980s, uh, fueled by, you know, the, 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 the war on drugs, the, the rise of the prison industrial complex. I was thinking about this also, and certainly Williams' gang, I think, points to this longer tradition of imprisoning black people, even during slavery. Uh, the domestic slave trade and the modern-day prison system uh, have, have some commonalities in terms of, you know, captive black and brown people uh, moved around from one place to the next so that they can make uh, huge profits for, for white people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And um, as we've seen, some of the early uh, uh, reviews have, have really picked up on that. So one of my uh, favorite things when I'm talking to writers is to ask them why they decided to write the book they're writing. Uh, your last book, Slave Against Slave, was about 
violence between enslaved people. So what led you to William's Gang? All of my books have basically resulted from the one that came before it. And uh, when I was researching uh, Slave Against Slave, uh, of course, I, I, in, in, in a situation like that, I was trying to find all kinds of episodes of violence internal to the slave quarters that the, the master's not involved with. And, and you know, tracking that down was, was difficult. And because uh, I wanted to find out, you know, what are enslaved people fighting about, you know, amongst themselves? And, you know, the, I mean, the answers, you know, quickly were just property, family, and honor. But I needed to find, you know, the sources to, to get to those answers. And, and I, I did happen to know that uh, Louisiana was one of the very few states that ever uh, imprisoned uh, enslaved people. Uh, for any length of time. Uh, and, and as a result of that, I headed over uh, to uh, Baton Rouge, and I was looking in uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary Board of Control reports. Uh, and uh, I, I was looking here because I wanted to see inside these penitentiary records if, if any enslaved people were imprisoned for having, like, murdered another enslaved person. So I looked through all these Board of Control reports and came up with this big database of probably 200 or so uh, enslaved people. Uh, and, and in these Board of Control reports, there was a column listed, listing you know, crime, you know, why they were there in the penitentiary. And uh, there, there were 10 of them listed there, uh, identified by name, uh, and, and their crime was listed as, quote, Williams Negroes. And, and I had no idea what that meant. Uh, all I knew is that it didn't apply to this book that I'm writing now. So uh, I, I set it on the back burner. But then uh, I was doing some more research uh, in uh, court records in Virginia at the State Library in Richmond. And I was looking through a reel of microfilm, and at the very tail end of that reel of microfilm, there was a, uh, a document that had uh, a list of enslaved people transported out of the state of Virginia. And I was looking through the list of, of names uh, under there, and like the names matched up. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? How do I have, because I remember these names, how can I have this set of enslaved people occupying uh, two different uh, state penitentiaries in the Old South. So I just started uh, this book to figure out what's going on, uh, what ties those two documents together. And, and little did I know, you know, how much it would rage out of control. Exactly. Um, and so where did that research process take you then, um, after you discovered those names and then started to, to work on this project? Um, and did you find anything surprising or particularly notable when you were then going to archives specifically to, to work on Williams Gang? You know, probably the most surprising thing was the sheer quantity of information that I was able to find. Um, Initially, without even having to leave the house, <laughs> because there's a lot of things that are available, just, you know, newspaper reports, census records, uh, slave ship manifests. You can find all this stuff online nowadays. 
but I did have to go back to the Library of Virginia and Richmond uh, to see uh, more court records uh, for those enslaved people who were caught up in this whole drama. Uh, I, I was over in uh, New Orleans to the Notarial Archive, uh, which has records of all of the, the slave sales uh, taking place in, in New Orleans. Uh, the LSU campus, Louisiana State Archives, helped fill in a lot of the, the gaps on the, uh, on the New Orleans side of the story. Um, of course, I had to head to the, the DC, uh, you know, to Washington, DC, the National Archives, um, spent a good couple of weeks there uh, going through court records. Uh, the, uh, the law library at Harvard uh, had the, uh, the R.G. Dunn report, the credit uh, reporting uh, on the William H. Williams slave trading uh, business, uh, and then some Alabama State Archives for uh, genealogical purposes. Uh, so I was able to find you know, plenty of stuff, uh, more than enough material, uh, although that there were certainly you know, some disappointments in there too. I know from some things that were said in court that there was, you know, a ledger book kept there at the Yellow House that documented all of the enslaved people that were uh, ever uh, warehoused there, uh, waiting for removal. Um, but but that has been lost uh, since then. So I mean, maybe somebody will find it in their attic someday and let me know. But uh, that that's that was the biggest disappointment of the bunch. So the you know one of the things I initially found um, so intriguing about this project was um, its originality in terms of bringing together uh, Southern jurisprudence, uh, material about the coastwise domestic slave trade, um, and the connection between slavery and capitalism, which um, is you know fairly new work that you built on in some really interesting ways. But also the topic of um, the criminality of the enslaved and the operation and functioning of slave pens, jails, and workhouses, because there's really hardly anything um, written on that at all. Uh, and like I said earlier, you've managed to do some very heavy scholarly lifting in a very accessible manner in this book. Uh, and as an editor, I applaud you for that. So, um, in terms of the audience, um, you know, who would you like to read this book? And I think that probably there, there are many audiences. So, so what audiences would you like uh, to, to find, and, and why? Yeah, um, you know, uh, as, as an author, I, I want the widest audience possible, of course. Um, but uh, I, I think anyone interested in the history of, of slavery generally, or the domestic slave trade, uh, would have you know something to uh, to learn uh, in in the pages of this book, uh, but you know Southern history, uh, the antebellum period of U.S. history more broadly as well. Um, but I think you know legal scholars, slave law, and 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 really just anyone interested in the history of racial injustice, uh, because you know th this is a book that that ended up. Um, maybe in, in ways I didn't necessarily anticipate, uh, being able to inform a lot of present-day conversations uh, about the criminal justice system and a lot of the, the inequalities that are, that are baked into it. So you said earlier that every book you write has led you to your next book. So um, 
Did William's Gang lead you to a new project? Yes, it did. Uh, when you were my editor, you, you had me delete a paragraph, uh, among many of the other ones that, that you had me delete, for, for, for the good of, of everyone else. They will all appreciate that. But that paragraph is the seed for the next one. Uh, it's a book called, uh, the working title is, is Slave Ships to Freedom, uh, Accidental Emancipation and Slave Reparations in the 19th Century Atlantic. Uh, this, this book will examine uh, four domestic uh, U.S. slave trading vessels uh, that were in the process of transporting uh, enslaved cargoes from uh, the, the upper south to the lower uh, between 1831 and 1840. But in each of these four cases, the, uh, the ships involved either wrecked or were blown off course to various holdings uh, in the British colonial Atlantic. Uh, the officers of the British government end up freeing all of these cargoes. And this creates uh, all kinds of uh, diplomatic headaches uh, for the British as uh, American uh, slave owners and uh, insurance companies uh, try to recover, if not the enslaved people themselves, then, then their monetary value. So we're looking at uh, reparations in, in very much a 19th century context uh, as the, the owners and the insurers try to get their money back. Um, great. So I have one last question for you. And you and I have talked about how much potential Williams Gang would have if it were made into a film. And um, I can certainly visualize so many things about this book on the screen. So if this were made into a film, who would play William H. Williams? You know, I, I've, I've played a, a casting director probably more than I should have uh, because that's really not my job. <laughs> but, you know, there's a few tricky things with, with casting Williams because, you know, he ages more than 20 years over the course of the book. So... You know, you, you need good CGI and makeup people, too. But, but in terms of the character, I mean, you need somebody who could, you know, certainly act the gentleman. Uh, but you'd also need somebody that you love to hate, uh, which I certainly do. Uh, so I'm thinking somebody like, a, like maybe a Sam Rockwell. Uh, I'm not the biggest name uh, that everybody immediately recognizes by name, but you'd know his face. He played like Wild Bill in The Green Mile. Yep. Uh, but, but he's one of these guys, I think, who would have the right combination of, of charm and smarm you know, to make it happen. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, okay, so it's been great uh, having you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and I look forward to talking with you more. Oh, well, thank you. It was my okay. pleasure.